begin Mark chapter 2, 18 to 22. Now John's disciples and the Pharisees were fasting, and people came and said to Jesus, Why did John's disciples and the disciples of the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? And Jesus said to them, Can the wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? As long as they have the bridegroom with them, they cannot fast. The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast in that day. No one sews a piece of unshrunk cloth to an old garment. If he does, the patch tears away from it, the new from the old, and a worse tear is made. No one puts new wine into old wineskins. If he does, the wine will burst the skins, and the wine is destroyed, and so are the skins. But new wine is for fresh wineskins. This is God's word. Amen. We've noted that Mark's biography of Jesus' life makes the claim that Jesus is the true king worth following. Well, we've rounded a corner and are making a turn in Mark's account in which we see Jesus begin to explain and illustrate what it looks like to follow a true king. And so we're calling this this sort of turn in Mark's story, monarch means one. Monarch means one, and it literally does, the word monarch uh, is an English word, but it comes from a Greek word uh, mono, one, and ark, which means uh, king or ruler. So if you were to imagine at the center of your being, if you will, an iron throne, there's a throne in the center of every person's being. I mean, obviously this is symbolic, but for which, which many rulers are constantly competing, and they make claims upon your life. But only one ruler at a time can sit upon that throne. Well, in the next couple of chapters, Jesus affirms his exclusivity of his claim upon the throne of your soul. He's saying, I am the king that is worthy of being on that throne to love you and help rule your life. So what my friend Luke read for us this morning in Mark chapter 2, verses 18 through 22 these verses are what I like to call next verses. Uh, and what I mean by that is it's a verse or a passage that is really dense, that it's hard to access. And when you get to it, you, you can do a few things with, the, with verses like this. You can, you can pause, you can ponder, you can peruse your study notes, or you can just peek ahead at what comes next. Right? You're, you're reading through the Bible, you're looking at this thing, you're like, eh, I kind of don't get it. I, I'm just going to move on to verse 23. And one reason you may be tempted to peek ahead and next verse for this thing is that Jesus responds to a, to a question with something like a poem. Uh, he uses three different symbols. He uses a marriage celebration. He uses a, a clo- clothing. He uses a wine accessory. And he does so only in a few verses. Highly symbolic. And unlike Mary had a little lamb, very hard to figure out the meaning behind the symbols, right? We get that. We get that poem. This one's a little harder. Let me ask you a question. How many of you, even now, like when you see a poem on the horizon, you just want to read past it, right? You see a poem in modern society. We're 21st century people. We see a poem. You just want to get past the poem, right? Let me, let me give you an example. Uh, someone, I, I'm going to put a, on a screen a, a greeting card, a front of a greeting card written in cursive. Someone has given you this card before, basically this card. 
All right, someone has handed it to you, they've, they've written it to you, they, they've given it to you. And now some of you, when they give you a greeting card like this, you read the poem on the front. Others of you, maybe most of you, you skip, you skip the poem, right? Not many of you are laughing too much because you know I'm that person, right? I'm the one who skips the poem. I get right to what someone says in the middle of the card. You just want to see what someone says they like about you in plain English. Because why? Because poems, it's too much, they're, they're, they're kind of, they're too dense. We don't want to take the time. We don't want to think about all the meaning. And that Jesus replies in this sort of poetic fashion. He wants people who are willing to think hard about what it means to follow him alone. And these verses exemplify that. So what we got to do first is we're going to take some time to linger upon these verses themselves and get the sense behind the symbolism. And that's going to take some more thinking maybe even than usual than we do here. But then we're going to circle back and see how that, that applies to our lives, how you and I might respond today to the teaching of Jesus, okay? So that's what we're going to do. Christianity, Islam, Judaism. Pretty much the same. They're all just responses to the same kind of guilt in our lives. Ever heard that before? Or maybe something even more earnest. Uh, each of these religions are all based around the same ethic of love. My guess is you've said or heard something similar in your life at one point or another. Lying behind the question posed to Jesus this morning is a notion that's kind of similar. It's an assumption that Jesus' followers, like those of John the Baptist, like the religious leaders of his day, the Pharisees, Jesus' followers are going to subscribe to the same type of Judaism. And so in verse 18, asked Jesus, why do John's disciples and the disciples of the Pharisees fast, but your disciples don't do the same kind of ritual? And Jesus essentially will make the point that Christianity isn't some add-on to your existing cultural or religious norm, but it's based on one person who brings light to every corner of your life. He's not someone you just add on to your system. He's someone who brings light to every part of your life and changes your entire system. So that's our message in a nutshell is this. And it's a little bit harder than our normal message in a nutshell because Jesus makes it a little harder. But Christians are different because of the plurality of how we worship and the singularity of whom we worship. Christians are different because of the plurality, all the different ways we get to worship, but the singularity of whom we worship. And I'll, I'll spend the rest of the sermon explaining all of what I mean here. But typical Jesus, he answers the question these people ask to him on two levels. First, he deals with the specific practice of fasting in his present time. Let's call it year 28 AD, just so there's no confusion. So Jesus talks about fasting, 28 AD, but he also points towards broader Christian worship in the future, after his resurrection and ascension from the dead. So let's first talk about worship and fasting, 28 AD. What is fasting, and why is it brought up here? All right, fasting is this occasional ritual or discipline of abstaining from food to remember one's need for an invisible God. We live in this sensory world of all kinds of physical things to enjoy. And because of that, one's spiritual sense often goes unexercised. It gets pushed to the side. So an invisible God asks people to sometimes 
practice this discipline of helping them connect with God, doing things physically that help them remember, remember things that are unphysical, God, immaterial. Okay. So, for example, next week we're going to see he calls people to often have a day of rest in the Jewish religion. It's like any other normal day, but instead of working, you stop working to remember that it's God who's always working in your life behind the scenes. Okay. Well, in Jesus' time, a Jewish person, there was only one day a year that a Jewish person was required to fast, to not eat. But there were all kinds of special days and a month or even a week where fasting was very much encouraged. All right, one day where it's required, but all these days in a month or even a week where it's encouraged. And Jesus was asked this question almost certainly during an encouraged time to fast. And these people are looking around. They're wondering, why, why are your followers still eating? Well, the difference with followers of Jesus is first one of time. Because in Jesus, in 28 AD, in Jesus, God becomes visible. Jesus compares himself to a bridegroom and declares this time, 20 AD, to be a de facto wedding day celebration. Now, you might think wedding celebrations. I've been to some good ones. I've been to some bad ones, whatever. But a wedding celebration in a Jewish village normally lasted seven days. Seven days. A plethora of food and wine, song and dance that would start in the home and then spill out into the streets. It was a beautiful thing. Even rabbis like the pastors of the time, the preachers of the time, they ceased, they were, they were supposed to cease and desist from teaching the Torah. So they can get down with their bad selves, right? They can get, pre, they can get down too. That's why as a pastor, you'll always see me dancing at weddings, all right? I don't want you to be alarmed by this at some point when you see me, all right? I, that doesn't mean I dance well. All right, just future disclaimer. But it brings up an important point. Not only is there no fasting, but if you notice as you read the accounts of Jesus' life, you don't ever see the disciples pulling out a Torah and reading it together. Why is this? Why would they wake up and have a quiet time meditating on God's Word when the living Word wakes up with them every day in Jesus Christ, in the flesh? Wonderful. So that's worship and fasting 20 AD. Then we get worship and fasting Jesus talks about now for the future, 2000. 23. Jesus pointed out there'd be a time where the bridegroom, he says, will be taken away. Now, if you remember, this practice of fasting was part of a larger time-specific, place-specific, form-specific kind of worship. To please, it pleased an invisible God by praying certain times of the day, reciting the Torah, or, or, or the first five books of the Bible, in certain places, like the temple or the synagogue. And it pleased God to worship in cert with certain forms, fasting, Torah reading, praying, Sabbath keeping, family festivals. And what Jesus is saying here is trying to take me and adding me into your existing system like I'm just an add-on, like I'm just a cherry on top. It's not going to work. It's like trying to take a new patch and sewing it onto an old garment of cloth. Once you wash both, and let both dry out, the patch is going to shrink and going to tear the rest of the garment. Why? Because it's never been washed and dried before. Or taking new wine, which has new gases, which have, which have yet to be released through fermenting, and being put into this old wineskin. This wineskin is already expanded and hardened. 
the old skin's going to burst and the new wine's going to spill out everywhere. This is why people, including yours truly here, have had a brutal time trying to fit Jesus into the system of how they already live. Like he's just sort of an add-on to your life. I'll sprinkle in a little religion, a little Jesus, it'll help me. You ever try to do this? It's hard because it turns out as you get to know Jesus better and you read more about his life and his teachings, he has something to say about the way we treat our bodies, about the way we spend our time, about the way we pay our taxes, about the way we use our money. That's because the light of his presence shines into every corner of our life. He leaves no part of it untouched. He's not just an add-on. He becomes everything, spreading his love into every part of our lives. One of the things that's unique about Christianity is the singular focus on one person. But that, as he says here, that one person is, quote, taken away. And what's so cool about that is that we see this displayed in the vocabulary of the New Testament. I don't like to usually get fancy with you guys, but I will once here. I want to share with you a particular word used for worship. As we know, as you may have known, the, so the Bible we have is translated into English, but it was originally written in the language of Greek. And there's this Greek word, proskuneo. And the sense of this word, proskuneo, is it implies a physical bowing down before a visible majesty. So physical and visible. Okay? That's worship. Physical and visible. We see this word 26 times in the Gospels, the accounts of Jesus' life. And then 21 times in the book of Revelation, the last book in the New Testament. This word only appears one time in between. 26 times in the Gospels, 21 times in the last book of the Bible, only one time in, the, in between. Why do you think that is? It's because in the first coming of Jesus, the king was present physically, visibly. In the second coming of Jesus, Jesus will once again be present visibly, physically. But in between, our majesty has gone invisible again. He dwells with us by all who trust with him and have the Holy Spirit in their lives. And because the invisible God always dwells with us, worship between the first coming and the second coming of Jesus is in any time, any place, virtually any form of experiencing and expressing love to the bridegroom. So that's why in the New Testament letters, worship is described in all kinds of different ways. It's not just sort of the typical ways Yes, it's praise and thanks and singing to God, but it's also good works you do in everyday life. Something you do to show kindness to another. It's financial resources shared between others in need. It's how one uses his or her body and everything they do, even as I walk along this stage and preach and use my voice to try to share why Jesus is worth following. So we see how worship begins to be broadened. More places, more times, more forms. That's, by the way, a pretty radical thing. I think we take it for granted that worship is so simple and so easy. But if you, if you were to be immersed in certain other religions where it's certain, you have to be in a certain place at a certain time and certain forms, you realize how wonderful this is. So to summarize all of what I've said, the new wine and the new patch it's like the invasion of Jesus into every corner of, our, of my life. And that's the singularity of whom we worship. Meanwhile, the new garment 
the new wineskin. It's this new way of worship. Anytime, any place, virtually any form. And that's the plurality of how we worship. How then can we respond to Jesus' teaching this morning? How can we respond to the sense of his teaching? Let me give us two possible responses. The first is this. Turn away from the insistence on a time, place, form specific practices that reduce worship to a formula. Since we insist on doing worship a certain way, a certain time, a certain place, and it, and it makes worship into this, this sort of formula. It's easy to assume that all of us appreciate more flexible forms of worship, however, whenever, wherever. But I'd argue that the longer we spend time with Jesus and we're around church and we, we do this religious stuff, we start to depend oftentimes on, on rigid forms of worship. It's what we know. We can check the box. We can move on. When I was first a Christian, I first started following Jesus. One of the ways I learned how to best connect with him was to escape by myself for time alone with him every morning. And someone taught me how to, so I would spend 30 minutes alone with God. I, I would take with me the Bible, a journal. I would read what God has to say to me through his word. I would write out a prayer and response in a journal and certain Bible verses that caught my attention. And spend about a half hour doing this. And every year, when I was a young guy, I would add five minutes. My goal was to add five minutes with God, time alone, every morning, each year. That's how I, one way that I sort of escaped. Yeah. And, and, I, and I came, one way I received life from him as I came into contact with the author of life. The problem was, it became the way for me to connect. The only way. When we had Mason, our youngest son, that created obvious demands on my time. And so I faced the prospect of changing my routine, changing my time with God. And man, I fought against it hard. I, I felt like, man, I don't feel God's love anymore. I don't. Why? Because I started to rely on a foreign-specific, time-specific kind of worship, a ritual in my life. When God was trying to teach me, hey, the same way you unconditionally love this child, I unconditionally love you, even though you're spending less time with me right now. It's okay. Years ago, the church we were attending was launching this night of praise and worship through singing. And someone in the church approached my wife, Katie, about her attending on this night and having young kids. She said, you know what? I'll try to come, but I might not be able to. Well, the response the person told her was, oh, you have to come. We've been praying about this for six months. It's going to be the way our church grows and how we get closer to God. And you see a form, a specific time, place, form of worship can become a kind of idol. It can become a kind of magical cure-all. Later in the New Testament, one of the followers of Jesus named Paul said this in Colossians 2, 16 and 17. He says, therefore, let no one pass judgment on you in questions of specific food or specific drink or with specific events like a festival, a new moon festival, a Sabbath day. These are a shadow of the things to come. The substance is Christ. Does that make sense? All these little rituals were just ways to connect with God until God came in the flesh, a person with whom we can relate, not rituals that we do. And that's important. 
Rituals, traditions, help a worshiper of any religion, Judaism, Islam, etc. They, they point towards an otherwise invisible God, but Christianity depends on substance. Literally, substance. A historical, in-the-flesh person who claims to be translated in human forms. God translated in human forms. Here he is. And knowing a person helps you be less dependent on rituals. Because it's a relationship. Time, place, form, specific kind of worship doesn't just happen in the religious realm, but in all of life. Think about all the times you're told that you must buy or possess a specific product to experience life to the fullest. If you get this, then life will be full for you. Like a formula. We literally buy into it. A formula. If I get this product, this diet, this change, I will have a fuller life. Sometimes we buy into some event, some gathering of persons, of family, of friends, and we fix all our thoughts on them. We clear our schedule for them. Sometimes we miss opportunities that are standing right in front of us because our hope is in a specific time or place. Yet try as we might and hope as we might, we never get life from those things, not true life, because we were built for a relationship. So the first way we can apply Jesus' word to our life is to turn away from your formula. Turn away from insisting on your formula for connecting with God. Another way we can apply Jesus' teaching to our life is a singular fidelity to the bridegroom changes our multiple ways of worship. That we can do all things for him, to him, and with him. This affects the way we do biblical rhythms of life. So if you want to fast, Fasting is no longer about not eating food to fulfill some ritual, thinking it makes God happy. You don't eat food so you can feast on him who is the bread of life. It helps you remember that my dependence isn't on food ultimately. It's on the God who gives me food. Reading the Bible is more than just about putting sentences together and reading notes to figure out why Paul sounds so ornery when he talks sometimes. It's about reliance on the Holy Spirit to illuminate these words that the king of the universe wishes to speak to me. Time set aside for private prayer isn't going through a list of prayer requests or writing dear diary just in a journal, but communicating with someone who wishes to use my prayers to change history. Telling others about Jesus is more than an official invitation, like, a, like to a well-meaning club like Rotary or Shriners or something like that, right? It's a divine appointment that requires total dependence on God's Spirit. You speak the, the best news a person will ever hear. We also worship God in the regular routines of our life, not just the religious stuff, the regular routines of our life. A good verse that's always helped me with this is Colossians 3.17. It says, whatever you do, whether in word or in, in deed, whatever you do, in other words, in your actions or the way you, way you speak, do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, giving thanks to God the Father through him. So if you can do it in the name of Jesus, do it. And keep on doing it as long as you can give thanks as you do it. So for example, we do our job. I do my job, but I no longer do it the same. I do it not for the approval from my boss, but to please God. I, when I do my job, I, I speak with humility. I laugh at myself. 
to show that my security isn't anchored in a job status. Sometimes I change the subject away from locker room talk when, when someone goes there. Or, or I praise a person who's the subject of gossip. I don't do my job the same. I still spend money, but I no longer spend the same. I protect my heart against the lies that I have to have something in my life, have something else, one more thing to fulfill it. I consider the needs of others, maybe even exercise generosity towards something like the giving tree, giving towards a kid who's impacted by foster care. I still relax in life. I take time. I play golf on, on Friday. I do that sort of thing, but I make the best use of my time. I create stuff for others. I redeem my relaxation through redemptive movies and shows. I use this opportunity for community with others and Thanksgiving, getting to know other people as well. Still make decisions every day, but I don't make decisions any longer by myself in isolation because I'm part of a community of God's people. And when we have a community of people, we, we rely on one another's wisdom and help and guidance. Proverbs 20 verse 1 says that it's, it's a fool who lives in isolation, who isolates himself. That person seeks his own desire. He breaks out against all sound judgment. We have one another. So you see what I mean? I do regular things, but I do them differently. That's what Jesus is saying here. It's a new wineskin. It's a new garment. Because I'm the new patch. I am the new wine. I want to turn to the first part of Jesus' analogy where he says he is the bridegroom and his followers are the wedding guests. I kind of found this phrase surprising because he didn't compare his followers to a bride. If you're having a wedding, you think, well, Jesus is the bridegroom, I'm the bride, he loves me. And elsewhere in the New Testament, the Bible also makes that analogy. Then I begin to think about our actual wedding. Katie and I have enjoyed dozens of weddings some of which, men had just baller receptions and, and dancing and singing with people of, all, people of all ages dancing and singing. That's like the most fun thing, right? When you see someone who's five and they're dancing with someone who's 85. It's like the coolest thing in the world, whatever age you are. But she will tell you, Katie would tell you this, as a bride, she hardly remembers our wedding today. That actual day for her was filled with stress and obligations, making sure various people were happy and comfortable and dealing with all the logistics. Wedding guests, they get to enjoy all the fruits of celebration, right? Without the stress, with all the, without the obligations, without getting all the logistics right. What a brilliant analogy then from Jesus. That's what worshiping Jesus is supposed to be like, to enjoy Jesus without getting all the logistics perfect, without the artificial limitations and obligations. Worship looks like giving thanks to Jesus as you're enjoying life. As you drive west on Bodega, out of the city, towards Tamales, and through, through the rolling hills, right? And you give thanks to him for what you see out there. It's giving thanks to Jesus as you cut up fresh vegetables for the meal that night, and you snag a couple of those peppers. Or as you eat an In-N-Out, double-double, right? Give thanks to Jesus, and, and even give thanks for what happens afterwards, I want to say. As you, as you change your newborn's diaper, you can give thanks for that, right? As you flush a five iron, as you watch Steph Curry play basketball, as you sweep the kitchen, you can give thanks. 
anytime, any place, any way. When I first started following Jesus, someone handed me this little book called The Practice of the Presence of God. It wasn't meant to be a book, by the way, written by Brother Lawrence. It was a, it was a kind of a journal he wrote. French monk many centuries ago. He had all these ambitions, but spent most of his years being a humble cook in a little French monastery. But he had this determination that he was going to connect with God in everything he did. Sweeping the kitchen, uh, lighting a stove, cleaning. And he writes that he, he determined to love God every time he flipped an omelet. Now, I don't know about you, when you read something from the 17th century, no one writes, I want to love God by flipping an omelet. And then I found that very refreshing that he did because he knew Jesus. His lifelong quest to do everything as an act of love and thanksgiving to God helped him write, hey, I no longer believe God's presence. I see and experience it. So it's, it's no wonder his, his little journal ended up getting published. It's been read by millions and millions of people. Didn't even mean to do it. Why? Because he just determined everything I do in life. I'm going to enjoy and give thanks to God like a wedding guest at a wedding feast of a bridegroom. Friends, if you can give thanks, you can enjoy Jesus however, whenever, wherever, and celebrate life as a perpetual wedding guest. Doesn't that sound great? Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we're grateful that even though this teaching is complicated, (laughs) that Because you became flesh, God in the flesh, knowing you is pretty simple. We can see your life, we can read about your life, we can hear about your love, we can see your love manifest in all kinds of ways you interacted with people or just did simple things while walking along the road and loving others along the way. Every part of your life was an act of thanksgiving and worship and love, and you mean and showing us yourself to invade every aspect of our life and make every act of our life a way of worship. Thank you. Thank you that we don't have to rely anymore on rituals or checking off a box or or just empty stuff. We can just enjoy you as a wedding guest and give thanks to you along the way in a relationship with you. We're grateful. Help us never take that for granted. It's in your name we pray. Amen.